I didn't get a phone call this year. Usually every Easter for a number of years until one of my cousins passed away, I'd get a phone call early in the morning. Sometimes I wasn't awake yet. And she would always say, Christ is risen. I see some of you know it, but not all of you. So it was always something. My mom, as I were coming here, we were talking to her through the car phone, and she had said she missed that too, that that would come in every Sunday morning. So, now we're into Easter, Resurrection Sunday, a great opportunity. I'm not sure what I'm going to preach, simply because all the verses that I had chosen have already been spoken from the front here. But, uh, but that's good. We're going to review them anyhow. When we were last together on Good Friday, we had viewed, begun to view the events of the cross through the eyes of Peter. And we left Peter lamenting his denial of Christ. And Peter is not spoken of again until after the crucifixion. See, as, as Peter wept, I wondered if he remembered some of the liturgies that were used in the temple They may have been used in his local synagogue. I particularly think and wonder if that music didn't come to his mind. See, music has a way of soothing our souls and meeting us where we're at. And coming to my mind comes Psalm 51. Perhaps they're the words that came to Peter as he thought of what he'd done and how he had denied Christ. Psalm 51 is a lament psalm. It was written by David. The words were penned after David was confronted by the prophet Nathan. And as he was confronted, he was confronted about his abuse of power as a king that resulted in an affair in the subsequent death and murder of Uriah, one of his soldiers. His disobedience to God, in a very real sense, is a form of denial of God's authority in David's life. In Psalm 51, we read this, first two verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. How could Peter know for sure that he was forgiven? He didn't have the rich theological letters that we have today. He didn't have... 1 John 1, 9 to go to where it says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There was no letter to the Roman church for Him to turn to. And the option of going to the temple and offering a sacrifice and speaking to one of the priests probably wasn't in His immediate plans. He was alone. He was alone wrestling with his own thoughts and the consequences of his own actions. Working out in his mind the teachings of Christ, the teachings that he had absorbed over the last three years. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to wrestle with our conscience. We, we become too preoccupied in our world, believing that if everything's going along just fine, and I don't have any problems, no hardships, that must mean that God's blessing is resting upon me. Well, that kind of teaching you'll find in the Word of Faith movement. You'll find that in one of the new apostolic Reformation churches. And I want to tell you this morning that that is a different gospel. 
From the second verse of John 16, we read this. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. That's what Christ told the apostles. And then into verse 33 of John 16, I have said these things to you that you may have peace in the world. That you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Believers are never promised an easy life. They are never promised this sense that you'll never have trouble come your way. Oh, how we wish it was that way. Beware of anybody that teaches this. It is a false gospel. Jesus did not come simply to make you healthy and wealthy and happy. He came to reconcile us to Himself. He came to see sinners that were lost reconciled to Him. To save lost souls. Let's open up in prayer. Father, as we turn to Your Word this morning on this Resurrection Sunday, we're so thankful for Good Friday. And it was good because Sunday was coming. It isn't one or the other, it is both. You died for our sins and You rose again, a victor over death, paying a debt that we could not pay. We're so thankful for that this morning, Father. We're grateful that You sought us out and that You've redeemed us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, after the arrest of Jesus in Gethsemane, through to the resurrection, there are only two disciples that are mentioned. Peter and John. Peter exits the scene during this second illegal trial. After denying Christ, he's upset and he leaves to lament and he goes off and weeps. And we do not see him for a while now. That was early on Friday morning. John, on the other hand, is present for the second trial. Now, we're not told exactly how long he was there or what he got to hear. Scripture is silent on that. John is also the only disciple mentioned to witness the death of Christ. Scripture is silent as to the whereabouts of the other ten. Judas, we know, hangs himself. Well, the Gospel of John, which we'll spend a lot of our time in this morning, not all of our time, but a lot of it, is helpful in reviewing the events of Friday. And in one of those events is the encounter of Jesus Christ with Pilate. Pilate's meeting and Christ's meeting is actually very fascinating. As, as they meet together, Pilate is convinced that Jesus Christ is innocent. He's convinced that he is being railroaded by the chief priests. However, he's a little bit between a rock and a hard place, as the old saying goes. So on one hand, he was not Rome's favorite person. That's why he was in backwater Judea. And in backwater Judea, it was difficult to work with the chief priests and the religious leaders. It was not the easiest place to rule. And there was a tension. There were often relationships were strained between the leadership that Rome sent 
and the, the religious leaders of Israel. And he walked this tightrope of having to please Rome and, and, and at the same time not make things so difficult that he would have some undue, undue stresses between himself and the leaders. For him, though, there was a possible solution. He thought, wait a second. Every year, there's this custom at Passover of releasing one Jewish prisoner. So he had deduced in his mind that given the choice between a a miracle-working rabbi and and this murderous, rabble-rousing man named Barabbas, that the crowds that were present that morning would certainly vote the rabbi off the cross. Well, Barabbas was granted clemency. Pilate? Pilate was left frustrated. Not only was he convinced of Christ's innocence, he was convinced that Jesus just might be the Messiah who he claims to be. In his frustration, he gets a bowl of water brought to him. He washes his hands in front of the crowd as to say, I wash myself of all this. It's your doing, not mine. And then he handed Christ over to the chief priests to crucify him. Jesus was then forced to carry his own cross along what has become known as the Via Della Rosa, the sorrowful way. And with help, Jesus made that final leg of his journey to the cross. The destination Golgotha or Calvary, where Jesus would be nailed to that cross that he carried. At noon, as Jesus hung on the cross, the the sky darkens. John records for us those who were there witnessing the crucifixion. From John 19.25 we read, Standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother, Mary, His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. The other Gospel writers tell us that there were other women that were witnesses. They were all from the region of Galilee. They were all followers of Jesus Christ. And then finally in the ninth hour, John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, He said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to His mouth. I think this, is, this part is just amazing because people would hang on for days when they were being crucified. You'll find in one of the Gospels that Pilate is amazed that Jesus is already dead. The whole timing, we're not going to hang Jesus. We're not going to put Him on the cross over Passover. He dies on Passover. And He chooses when to give up. Verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It was all in Christ's timing. They came along, they broke the legs of the other men beside him. Then Joseph of Arimathea, 
who was part of the Sanhedrin, asked for the body of Jesus. He and Nicodemus, you recall Nicodemus? Nicodemus was the Pharisee that came to Jesus at night and wanted to know how to be born again. Well, they wrapped the body of Jesus and they laid it in a new tomb owned by Joseph. And as all of this unfolded and took place before the Sabbath began, so this would be around dusk, 6 o'clock in the evening, watching from a distance, Luke chapter 23, verse 55, the woman who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. 24 hours after, so the Sabbath had ended, it was dusk again. Some of those same women set out to buy more spices to use on the body of Jesus. I want to invite you, we're going to spend some time in Mark chapter 16 now. So turn with me to Mark chapter 16. This is the first mention of Peter since his denial. Starting in verse 1 of Mark 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went out to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from us from the entrance of the tomb? Let's stop for a moment right there. Let's not rush ahead of ourselves. We all know the ending of the story. Let's just pause for a moment here. The devotion of these women is very commendable. In first century Israel, they did not embalm bodies. So these extra spices that were being brought were not for the preservation of the body, but an act of devotion. The extra spices, the purpose would be to help cover up the foul smell of a decaying body. But as worthy as the efforts were, these women were misguided. Their actions showed a lack of faith. See, they too would have been witnesses to the teachings of Jesus. How? How did they miss the promise? He said He would rise on the third day. So instead of waiting in expectation, they were making their way to the tomb. The promise of Christ to rise on the third day can be found early in John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. And as recently as Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, where we read, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It was no secret. It's not like it was written on a scroll marked confidential and hidden in someone's garage. Everybody knew. This was the, this, this was the very re- reason that the religious leaders of Israel were concerned. They went to Pilate to have a conversation. Read this in Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 62. The next day, which followed the day, the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, 
we remember that while this deceiver was still alive, he said, after three days I will rise again. So give orders that the tomb may be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal him and tell people he has been raised from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. So the women were walking to the sepulcher, talking amongst one another, probably consoling each other a little bit. But their main concern was moving that stone. How are we going to move that stone? They were not aware of that there was a, a guard detail that had been assigned to the tomb. Well, the events of that morning negated that concern anyhow. The guards had abandoned their post before they arrived. Pick up with me in verse 4 of Mark 16. And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, <clears throat> dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who, has, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So as they walked along consoling and, and chatting with one another, they looked up to the place because, because the tomb would have been up a little bit on a mountain, dug into the side of it. And as they looked up to the cut in the hillside where the, where the stone should be, that big stone had already been rolled away. One could only imagine what was going through their minds when they saw that. Did they remember Jesus' promise? Or were they fretting that some cruel hoax had just been played on them? From Matthew's Gospel, we learn that Mary Magdalene is the first in the tomb. She's the first into the empty sepulcher and the burial cloths laying on the stone minus the expected body. Now, if I was writing this story, if I was the one writing this and planning this all out, if I was going to make it believable for a first century audience, I have a problem with what just happened. I have a huge problem with what just took place. Why? Well, the first witness is a woman. A, a woman's testimony could not even be used in court at that time. It wasn't valid. And to boot, the first woman was previously possessed by seven demons. Human nature as it is, this woman was probably known as Crazy Mary at some point in her life. Whoever decided that that was a good idea? Whoever decided that, oh, this is how we're going to make it go because everybody will believe Crazy Mary? I have two thoughts on this. First, a proper study of Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, will show you God's value for woman and His continual exalting of woman above the cultural status of the time. 
that is still true today. Maybe more true today. Second, if the resurrection was made up, and who in their right mind would have picked a woman to come in first? You would want some man arriving, discovering that Jesus had arisen. I had an opportunity this week to share with one of the medical professionals that helped me with my ongoing knee saga. He's not a believer. And as I shared about Easter and what we're talking about, I shared with him this, this thought. I brought the point to light about, well, if you were writing this story to make it believable, why would you have a woman show up first? He understood my reasoning. His response was this. He never thought of that before. If that was simply made up by somebody, you wouldn't pick a woman, would you? Huh. That lends a lot of credibility to the resurrection story, doesn't it? And that was from a man that does not know the Lord. Aware of the hesitancy of the woman, the angel encourages them to not be alarmed. He announces that Jesus is risen. He says, look, see, he's not here. And then in verse 7, as a nod to Peter's struggle to find forgiveness, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Nobody else is mentioned, but Peter. That he's going to Galilee. He's going before you to Galilee. Peter's lament had been accepted. Just like John, for what John, 1 John 1 9 says, he was forgiven. Too often, Christians are slow to forgive themselves and slow to forgive others. There are no grudges here. Make sure Peter's welcome, make sure he knows he can come. If Peter can be forgiven for denying the Lord, not once, not twice, but three times. I don't think there's anything that you or I can do that will not be forgiven if we repent. Romans 8.1 says this, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We need to remember, if Jesus doesn't condemn us anymore, neither should we condemn ourselves. And if Jesus doesn't condemn our brother and sister anymore, neither should we condemn them anymore. The Christian walk has no place for people who are self-righteous and lack grace. I believe Peter learned that right here after all that he'd been through. And under the, under the guide of the Holy Spirit, Peter writes this in 1 Peter 4.8, Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. We as believers need to live with grace by grace. Turn with me for a second now. I said we're going to jump around a little bit. Turn with me for a second to Luke chapter 24 and look at verses 10 through 12. Luke 24, 10 through 12. For a moment, I want, it, want us to witness Peter's reaction upon hearing the news that's about to come his way. 
So eventually, the ladies seem to find their voices, and then they go to the disciples. Verse 10 of 24 in Luke. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and and Mary the mother of James, and the other woman with them, who told these things to the apostles. But the words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So when the woman came to the apostles, even they, who should have known better, thought that they were telling empty tales and nonsense. Daniel Darling cites three theologians regarding the importance of these witnesses. Listen as I read. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, whose massive study, The Resurrection of the Son of God, is perhaps one of the most significant and exhaustive examinations of the evidence, remarks, The women are prominent in all the Gospels. They saw Jesus die watched his body being laid in the tomb, discovered the tomb empty, and encountered an angel or two. Another scholar, R.T. France, concurs. They are therefore the guarantee that when the tomb is found to be empty, there has been no mistake. These same women saw him die and saw where he was buried. They would not have gone to the wrong tomb. Richard Bauckham notes, the scrupulous care with which the Gospels present the woman as witnesses, in particular Matthew's account, in which Mary, Jesus' mother, Salome, and the other woman, Mary, are named as present. From death to resurrection, the law of Moses required the presence of at least two witnesses to verify a story, Deuteronomy 17.9, and yet the Gospels not only say many women were present, but they name at least five. So these women saw him die on the cross. They saw that he was buried in a tomb. And then they went to the right tomb and saw that it was empty. Once Peter arrives... He witnesses what the woman had saw. And he leaves amazed. Jesus had risen, just as he said. Jesus then shows himself many more times, including to Peter. The two men on the Emmaus Road record in Luke 24, 34, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Now the content of that meeting between the two of them is never revealed in Scripture. But we find that Peter finds his peace over an early morning breakfast on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Turn with me to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. And just so you are aware of this, there is some textual thoughts around John chapter 21, but don't let anybody tell you that it's not real. John chapter 21 is in every Old Test or every old manuscript that we can get our hands on, as far back as somewhere between 110 and 150. John chapter 21. 
After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, or Galilee, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you too. And they went out and got into the boat. That night they caught nothing. See, when Peter was first called by Jesus, he was a confident man. He probably thought he'd be an asset to the rabbi. And and, and throughout the three years, Peter was a leader of this band of 12. But on this particular day, he didn't feel much like a leader. Unsure of what to do next, possibly still believing he didn't measure up to what Jesus wanted of him and his expectations, it made sense for him to return to what he knew best, fishing. But Peter was still a leader, even though he didn't realize it. He was followed by the others. They all went fishing. Returning to the water must have felt good to Peter. The, the boat underneath his feet, the wind in his hair, the smell of the water and the fish must have felt so right to him. But why did they come up empty? After a whole night on the Sea of Galilee, nothing. Look at verse 4. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered Him, No! He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat. You'll find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. I can't help wonder if they didn't have some deja vu here. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When, when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had stripped off what he had stripped off for work and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. Peter was so thrilled to see Jesus. Being so close to shore, he just jumped overboard. And whether he thought he could walk again on the water, I don't know. Or he's going to swim to shore or he's running through the water, we're not told. But verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now the disciples dared not ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Just Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Wow, more deja vu. You have some fish. 
after the large catch that you just had. Let's sit down and have a meal together. I want you to remember for a second. When was the last time we saw Peter sitting by a charcoal fire? Do you remember? That's right. The morning of the crucifixion. Early that morning. What might have gone through Peter's mind as he sat and ate? What might he have been thinking of? Well, at the conclusion of the meal, as breakfast was done, Jesus begins to talk to Peter. John chapter 21, verse 15. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Jesus takes Peter back to before he was the rock. Notice he refers to him as Simon. The name that he was known before his first encounter with Jesus. And he asked him, do you love me more than these? What was he referring to? What were the these? Were the these the tools of the trade? His boat, his net, all that he had for fishing? Or were these a reference to the other ten disciples? Most scholars believe that it's a reference to the other ten disciples. It's a reference to his declaration in the upper room. Oh Lord, they may all fall away for you, but not me. I'm willing to die for you. You can count on me. Jesus, when he asked Peter, do you love me? Well, he uses the Greek word agape. Charles Swindle explains that word this way. The New Testament writers drew upon the word to express the kind of love Jesus lived and taught. Agape loves God first, loves neighbor as self, and loves enemies and friends alike. While strongly emotive, agape is not fueled by emotion. This Christ-like love places high value on tangible expressions of kindness rather than emotions that accomplish nothing. Peter responds to Christ's questions. He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But Peter uses the word phileo. To have infection or regard of a high order. But but not the highest order. It is if Peter understood. He hesitated. He didn't want to do what he'd done before. He didn't want to say, well, you know, Lord, I love you more than all these men. All these guys that I ran away with when they arrested you. See, Peter had a change of heart and a change of attitude. And we know that because he penned in 1 Peter 5, 5 through 11. And I know it's a little longer, but be patient as I read. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, this would include the elders, with the humility, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time you may be exalted, casting all your cares on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. 
your adversary, adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter had learned. Peter understood now. Still in verse 15, he said, this is Christ's answer to Peter, feed my lambs. Feed my little lambs, my little ones. Then in verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, and and again, Jesus uses the word agape. And Peter responds with phileo. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then he said to him, tend my sheep. This time, care for my sheep. Care for my adult lambs. In verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? This time Jesus changed his word from agape to phileo, to have affection or high regard for somebody. Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? Well, why, why was Peter grieved? Was Peter grieved because the three questions reminded him of his three denials? Was Peter grieved because Jesus changed agape to phileo? Perhaps Peter was upset because he thought he was answering correctly, but but somehow Jesus kept asking. He wasn't trying to be arrogant about his love for Jesus. His understanding had changed. But something was still wrong. Maybe, maybe he knew his love fell short of what both men desired. Maybe he knew he couldn't match it. Was Peter growing? Did did he realize he couldn't do it on his own? That to love God properly, he would have to love in the power and the strength of God. Verse 17 And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Then Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. No lectures, just a clear statement of expectation. Peter, lead the church. I have chosen you to be cornerstone of this movement, to be the rock. Peter would be foundational to the building of the church. And all that God was doing. Then there was a somber moment. A prophecy. As Jesus tells Peter, he too will die on a cross. An event that had already occurred at the writing of the Gospel of John when verses 18 and 19 were penned. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and to walk wherever you wanted But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This was this he said to show 
by what kind of death was to, he was to glorify God with. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter seemed at ease with this in time. Not right away, but in time. In First Peter or in Second Peter, two, uh, chapter one, verses twelve and fifteen, Peter writes this: "Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir up by the way of reminder, since I know that I am p- that the putting off of my body will s- be soon, as our Lord." Jesus Christ made clear to me and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to recall these. So regardless of the future Peter was asked to follow and to trust. And that was something that was about to be reinforced before this book closes. See somewhere in the conversation Peter and the Lord had risen from around the campfire and they had started to walk along the shoreline. In John chapter 21, verse 20, And Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. It's commonly held that the belief is that the two walked away from the charcoal fire and tagging behind them at a short distance, Peter caught a glimpse out of his eye, out of the corner of his eye. And can you imagine, he just heard that he would die by crucifixion himself. Well, what, one would, what would one expect Peter to say? See, Peter was forgiven. He was not perfected. And his natural thought would have been, well, if I'm dying on a cross, what about John? Now, John's name was probably used more out of proximity than anything else. Peter was probably curious, well, what about the others? How are they going to die? I think Jesus' answers hold some truth not only for Peter, but for each one of us. Peter was told not to be concerned about the life of John, not to be concerned about the lives of the other disciples. See, it's easy to begin to covet and compare ourselves to others around us. And that has been the downfall of many. I believe we're all guilty of it. You can covet a person's health. Why did I get sick? Why not them? You can covet a person's wealth or fame or circumstances. It doesn't matter. King David was not satisfied with his own situation and coveted another another man's wife. What a mess that was. We question why someone has more money. Why someone has a nicer car. Why they can go on a nicer vacation. The answer to all these comparisons, the answer to all these comparisons is the same. 
you follow me. One of Peter's final lessons recorded in the Gospels for us is not to worry about what God has in store for others around us or why others have more or can do more or or whatever it may be. It's a lesson of responsibility for each of us. Peter was to be responsible for what God had called him to do. Peter was responsible for the resources entrusted in him and how he would use them. Is life fair on this Resurrection Sunday? We can say amen to life not being fair. Why? Because in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death and the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If life was fair, none of us would be bound for heaven. We would be bound eternally to the sin that we had committed. Instead, as we've done already, we can sing of God's mercy in our lives. And we can learn from Peter. We just read about this. 1 Peter 5.10 The God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You can find forgiveness in Christ. That is what Easter is all about. That He went to a cross and He paid the penalty of sin. That no matter what you've done or where you've wandered to, it doesn't matter. What matters is a repentant heart before God and there you will find forgiveness because your sin was paid for at the cross. I ask that you bow your head. As we go to prayer, I ask that you'll think about those words. That on the foot of the cross, you could lay down your burden because Christ already paid for that sin. But you don't have to worry about it anymore. And this morning, if you haven't trusted Christ as your personal Savior, please speak with someone who brought you or someone you know or myself. We'd be glad to share the message of the good news of this Resurrection Sunday, that He has risen from the grave. Father, we thank You this morning for Your love for us. We thank You that on the cross, the penalty for sin was paid. We thank You that both Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday are part of our history and our legacy. And there we can find forgiveness. As the world seeks through this philosophy and that philosophy, Peace can be found with our Maker and that You were the one that sought to make peace to us. You made the first step towards us in sending Your Son and then allowing Him to die on a cross and to be risen again. That You Yourself paid that penalty for sin that we could not. So we celebrate this Resurrection Sunday We celebrate our new life and we're so thankful for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.